This is All Things Explained. Welcome back. We are here with... The boy who never was. And I'm looking forward to seeing where you take this today. Well, thank you. Um, since I'm going to be explaining everything, I really need to start with the essentials of being a human, which is the title of this episode. Excellent. And what is essential about being a human? And I, and I want to start off with the story of Adam and Genesis. Because Genesis says that what made Adam special was that he was made in the image of God. And when talking about Adam, I'm going to leave off the crown of creation stuff and consider only how Adam, like any human, differed from the animals around him. I mean, what made him special? And as far as image, which is a visual term, Adam was bipedal. He had opposable thumbs. And I'm thinking perhaps the physical attributes are not so relevant to the image because actually Genesis says that Adam and Eve were both created in God's image, which strongly suggests that it is not the kind of image God is talking about. A more striking difference and more relevant is that Adam and Eve talked to God, which shows they could think conceptually. Animals can't do that, despite what you may have thought from the Washoe experiment or what you were told about dolphins in the children's nature programs you watched. Dolphins do not talk to each other just like humans do. Animals can signal to each other by pheromones, body posture, and sounds. I can go into more depth in another program. The gist of the matter is that animals can't think in sentences. So they can't think in terms of statements of fact. I don't care so much about animals right here. I'm looking for what was special about Adam, what made him being a being in the image of God. And statements, language, um, are strange things. Statements can be either true or false. And statements, along with concepts of truth, are just lost to animals. They can be conditioned, but they can't think and reason. All I'm concerned here, again, is that Adam, right out of the box, could think in terms of true and false statements, and he could understand commands. Adam seemed to understand well enough God's command not to eat of the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden. Now, I'm sure many of you, uh, Christian and non-Christian, don't believe the story of Adam is literally true. And I'm not sure whether it's literally true. I think it's plausible because I have serious doubts about Darwinism. But all that is important here is that Adam represents the human condition. It's illustrative to consider how Adam came to know good and evil. He starts out not knowing good and evil, which is strange because he seems to have all the other basic human capacities. Adam seems to have behaved well enough toward Eve and seems to have uh, had a proper regard for the garden made for them by God. He and Eve seem to be quite the provincial couple in their behavior. So it's not that Adam was behaving badly and didn't know it. So Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden fruit and suddenly they know good and evil. What does that even mean? And what was in that fruit? If they had eaten the fruit and had begun seeing colors, we could understand that. But how could the contents of a fruit give one a knowledge of something as abstract as the supreme ethical concepts of good and evil? 
I think the answer is that it didn't. The forbidden fruit in the Garden of Eden contained fructose, fiber, some flavonoids, the usual stuff you would find in any piece of fruit. What was special about it was that it was forbidden. Upon eating it, Adam and Eve knew good and evil and that they now had a first-hand experience of violating the will of their Creator and were now outside the will of God. They had, in reality, ruptured their relationship with God and they understood that they had done that. When God comes looking for them, they try to hide from them. Well, good luck with that. Now, I wasn't there. I don't know what was in the fruit. Perhaps it had a supernatural element. The important thing for me here is that I can make sense of this story without the fruit having a supernatural element. And so that's what I'm doing. So the big deal with the forbidden fruit was simply that it was forbidden. All that happened materially was that Adam made a piece of fruit. Why was that a big deal? Well, in itself, it wasn't. All the action was happening in the realm of language. God had pronounced a string of sounds that constituted a command. Adam understood the command. Adam acted materially contrary to the meaning of the string of sounds in God's command. So why was that a big deal? Because it goes to the heart of the human condition. Adam and Eve acted contrary, on one level at least, to the purpose and narrative God intended for them. These matters of purpose and narrative are crucial to who we are. We like, indeed, need to have narratives for our lives. We thrive on having a purpose, a goal we consider worthy of commitment and sacrifice. The narrative contains the perceived meaning of one's life. All this happens on the level of language and meaning. Let me emphasize that such immaterial matters are real. Now consider, you can't copyright something that does not exist. So in the same way that a novel copyrighted is real, even though the story in it is fiction, the narratives we hold for our lives exist regardless of how askew from the truth our account of our own lives might be. The mere existence of a narrative about the meaning of one's life shows that humans conceptualize and hold values, purposes, and meanings. The central locus of that meaning is in our personal relationships. I'm not saying something speculative here. It's commonplace for people to believe that family relationships and loyalties are crucial to living a meaningful, fulfilling life. And this is where language comes in. The ability of humans to think statements about their own condition and intentions and communicate those thoughts to another person are essential to living a deeply meaningful life. This is especially so when two people establish a trusting, committed, long-term relationship, sharing their most guarded feelings, desires, and beliefs, Meaningful communication shares information about one's experiences, inner feelings, thoughts, values, ambitions, goals, views on purpose, beauty, humor, metaphysics, faith, the afterlife, views on personal relationships, personal commitment, loyalty, dedication, love, and sensitivity. The communication of such thoughts 
builds, even constitutes the relationships that for many people give the greatest meaning and purpose to their lives. The deepest personal relationship is found in marriage, and the verbal articulation of commitment is essential to marriage. The sharing of commitment is more than a contractual relationship. It is, it is, it's an expression of love that transcends the material commitments people make to each other. Consider the man who stays with his chronically ailing wife, not out of an abstract sense of duty, but because she is precious to him, regardless of her condition. Another man might divorce his miserable wife and seek someone else because he thinks he deserves to be happy or some such. The first man does not even think of such a maneuver. Only death can separate him from his beloved. Yet his relationship involved the explicit promise stated in his marriage vows and maintained in his relationship through rich or poor, in sickness, and in health. The truth of that statement was the foundation of his lifelong relationship. The love transcends the commitment, but it is not separate from the commitment. Other relationships without the commitment of marriage still hinge on varying degrees of loyalty and shared intimacy. With these relationships too, almost all the sharing of emotional intimacy is verbal. Now, nonverbal communication is important, it's real, but even it rests largely on verbal communication. The other person slumps his shoulders in response to something one says. Without the initial verbal communication, the nonverbal response can't be understood. Our body posture, the tone of voice have much to do with how our words are interpreted, whether they are sincere, set in anger, constitute a challenge, or constitute a friendly offer of support. However, the words are the essential element, without which the body posture and tone of voice are feeble at communicating one's meaning. While deeply committed relationships are important to a meaningful life, even casual relationships add to our sense of well-being and purpose. A bartender who knows our name and listens to our troubles, a grocery packer who always treats us with respect, a number of people can have minor but positive roles in our lives. Marcus Aurelius wrote, It never ceases to amaze me. We all love ourselves more than other people, but care more about their opinions than our own. Humans are social beings made for relationships, and meaningful human relationships involve the sharing of conceptualized information. Once we recognize that personal relationships are crucial to living a meaningful life, we can see that the cultivation and maintenance of such relationships requires showing a due regard to each other. People must feel safe enough to share their true thoughts, or the relationship is a scam, not a relationship of personal, personal sharing, but a manipulative relationship concerned with power and guardedness. We can see now how another person has value to us, and why we have value to other people. If we, if we view people merely as a means to an end, as tools to be used for our purposes, then we are not in a sensitive, meaningful relationship with them. We are not living a meaningful life. If we regard other people as persons with goals of their own with whom we can share meaningful discourse and bond deeply with shared feelings communicated in sincerity, then we can begin living a meaningful life. 
This is why people have dignity. Our regard for them is necessary for us to have a meaningful relationship with them, a relationship that respects and upbuilds the personhood of both people. We need the relationships other people can offer. The relationship we need is not a thing we can buy from them, but an act of living that involves trusting them, sharing ourselves with them, living our lives with them as equal persons, deserving our respect and consideration, and so bonding with them and loving them. It is not that we, if we do all these things, we then achieve something separate, a meaningful life, as a prize for our sacrifice. No, doing all these things is living a meaningful life. We can recognize the superior worth of meaningful relationships over manipulative relationships. The latter involve superficial relationships or outright lies. Manipulative relationships do not involve emotional bonding, but emotional distance on the part of the manipulator who cannot proceed with his manipulations if he cares about the people he is exploiting. It is essential to him that he not care about the victim. It is better for the manipulator if he hates and despises the victim. Most con artists hate people. They are full of anger and contempt. They are incapable of living meaningful lives. They relate to people only to gratify themselves monetarily or by enjoying the pain of the victim. Bullies do not share themselves in a trusting relationship, but control, demean, and exploit their victims. They relate to others only through power. Their relationships are, by design, meaningless relationships that exist only to gratify the passions of the bully. Con men, bullies, and other evil people live deficient lives themselves because they live to harm other people and so can never develop the kinds of relationships that constitute a meaningful existence. Ethics, then, turns out not to be a long list of tiresome duties, but the ways we must treat each other to have the kind of meaningful relationships that constitute a meaningful life. Ethics is integral to living a fulfilling life. The golden rule stated by Jesus to do unto others as you would want others to do to you is the behavior required for one's own good. Another way to put it is to be fair to people. Treat all people as being equally important in their own right because they are. Fairness is a moral concept because it is about recognizing the inherent worth in every person. Relating to the person recognizing that truthful relationships freely chosen without deception are at the core of the meaning of life. Truth and deception are crucial concepts here because meaningful relationships require conceptualized communication and a conceptualized understanding of the relationship, a narrative. Truthfulness is an ethical virtue because it is essential for any trusting, mutually respect respectful sharing of information about oneself, any trusting, mutually respectful relationship. And trust is essential to revealing oneself to others in the ways necessary for a meaningful relationship. Now, truth is about language. Is one being truthful in what one says about oneself, including what one says about one's feelings for the other person and about one's commitment to that person? 
Ethics is all about creating and maintaining the relationships necessary for a meaningful life. A crucial component of these relationships is language expressing truths rather than falsehoods, commitments that are real rather than manipulations. Ethical people can lead meaningful lives. Unethical people cannot. Our innate need for relationships and meaning is our natural conscience. It is the recognition that some actions are quote-unquote right and that they are conducive to living a meaningful life and other actions are quote-unquote wrong because they undermine meaningful living. So ethics is grounded in the part of human nature involved with having a meaningful existence. We understand something is wrong when it involves treating another person in such a way that their relationship is broken, that it now involves falsehoods, emotional distancing, denying the other person's full worth, reducing the person to an entity to be manipulated for some goal other than living a meaningful life. Now, pleasure is not bad in itself. Pleasure can be a vehicle for meaningful shared behavior between the members of a marriage, a sensitive, vulnerable relationship, or pleasure can become a meaningless end in itself. We need rules of ethics because our passions lead us toward meaninglessness. If we could live our lives in a constant state of pleasure without meaning or purpose, we might be tempted to do so, engaging our passions in a way that defeat the meaning of our lives. And now we can understand why eating the fruit was a big deal for Adam. Adam was made for relationships. His relationship with his creator would have been the deepest, most fulfilling relationship he could possibly have. He could have shared everything about himself with God and in return could have had a close personal relationship with the most loving being in existence. Ethics stems not from an arbitrary set of rules contrary to our nature, but is a description of the behaviors necessary to live in accordance with our nature, which is to live in loving relationships with other people. Ethics tells us how to avoid letting the passions that are vehicles for expressing meaning-giving love become ends in themselves, and so become the goals and service to which we live a meaningful existence. Uh, excuse me, in service to which we would live a meaningless existence. Our conscience is simply our rational awareness that we are acting or not acting in accordance with creating and maintaining meaningful relationships rather than living meaningless lives as slaves to our passions. Once we understand our own nature, we can see that we are naturally ethical creatures, that the rules of ethics simply describe what is to our benefit, that unethical behavior harms ourselves as well as others, that our temptations are not bad in themselves, but can be misused by being made ends in themselves. Framing it all is our nature as linguistic creatures, creatures designed to live meaningful lives, lives of language, language expressing everything about us in order to communicate that information to another person, language that allows us to think and express commitments to one another, statements that constitute a meaningful relationship with that person that allow love to supervene on the statements made by people to each other, 
language that conceptualizes and expresses the moral judgments about the actions available to such intelligent but passion-laden beings. There is nothing mysterious about any of it except the mystery of how language, immaterial meanings, can exist in a purely material world, and the mystery of how we continually end up doing with enthusiasm exactly the worst thing for us. We think we are being clever feeding our passions while harming other people when, in doing so, we harm ourselves. Then we complain at the unfairness of the universe. It is bad enough that the human condition is one of constant conflict between our need to live a meaningful life and our desire to satisfy our urges that are in themselves meaningless. It is worse when we live in a society that glorifies living a meaningless existence and even denies the reality of meaning itself. In our next episode, I will explain exactly why our society is dedicated to falsehoods about the meaning of life, and I will talk about what we can do to change it. Mm -hmm.